Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Drill to Detail podcast and I'm your host Mark Whitman. So I'm very pleased to be joined today by someone I've known for many years, but never yet had on the podcast, Jeff Pollock, Vice President, Product Development, Fast Data Technologies, at Oracle. So welcome to the show, Jeff, and great to have you with us. Mark, it's great to be here. I'm glad we finally got connected. I'm actually really excited uh, to be on your podcast. What a cool new uh, project. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Um, so we've known each other for, for kind of many years now, really. I remember, I think I've been on stage with you before at Open World and various things. Um, but um, maybe just tell us uh, what, it, what actually is your role at Oracle now? Um, and maybe kind of tell us how you got into that role and, and, and what was the inspiration really for you for doing that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I'm actually a, a boomerang at Oracle. I'd, I'd been at Oracle for some time, uh, starting originally in 2006, looking after a variety of different data integration technologies. I ran the bulk of Oracle's ETL technologies, brought uh, Oracle into the cloud around uh, data integration, et cetera. I left for a while, gone to IBM. I ran IBM's information integration business, uh, helped them pivot into the Watson uh, framework uh, for their data integration and data governance technologies. When I came back uh, to Oracle, I really began to focus a lot more on our fast data technologies, including the Golden Gate uh, technology frameworks. I now run all of our streaming, stream processing, stream analytics technologies. And um, as an interesting aside, for that core technology that's also used for low downtime database migrations, I also run our uh, uh, database migration cloud service and core technologies around database migrations, which are you know part of that fast data suite. So that's a mouthful, but that's um, <laughs> that's in a, you know what I've got uh, going right now at Oracle. Fantastic, and I really, I mean, apart from the fact that I've known you for a while, the other reason I'd like I wanted to get you on here was, yeah, you know, we've been talking a lot on the, on the on the show about um, data transformation technologies and and analytics and analytics engineers and and so on and. That's certainly one, one, I suppose, angle or aspect to, to the industry. But really, you know, as Oracle, you get to you get to work with some of the kind of biggest customers and some of the kind of biggest problems and, and the technologies you work with in this area. Certainly, you know, things that maybe we'll come across later on in, in, in the work that I do with new, to, new, new customers. But certainly things like, um, I don't know, you've done a blog post recently about modular data mesh and so on. Mm-hmm. Maybe just tell us, maybe just without getting into detail of that too so far, what kind of customers does Oracle p- provide data integration technologies for? And what would you say would be the differentiators for those customers compared to maybe the startups that we normally talk about on the show? Yeah, that's a, a pretty interesting question, kind of just insightful to hone in on the, the customer types. The um, you know, Traditionally, uh, Oracle has had a footprint across 180 countries globally, and we tend to uh, provide data management capabilities for hundreds of thousands of customers. I forget exactly what the exact number is on the Oracle website, but it's, you know, over 400,000, you know, total customers, you know, globally. So that's, you know, it's it in that regard, it's just about everybody that, you know, kind of touches an, an, an Oracle database at, at some level. The From a, a data integration standpoint, our customers tend to be I would say kind of the the top largest fifteen to twenty thousand cus- uh, businesses in the in the world. Um, so if you look at it kind of as a cohort across one hundred and eighty countries, and then you just kind of bubble sort 
what would be the the top largest um, you know fifteen to twenty thousand businesses across those hundred and eighty countries that would tend to kind of capture what we have as our customer base for the the data integration uh, area so uh, it tends to be the larger. If you kind of looked at that from a long tail perspective, where the the clusters happen, um, we're we're definitely clustered in on what I would describe as kind of the the global, you know, top five hundred uh, businesses. Does that make sense? Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So so <clears throat> we we've known each other for exactly for many years, and I think I think that when I first spoke to you um, was when we were looking when when I was working with tools like Oracle Data Integrator back in the day, around twenty ten, so ten years ago. Um, and there was things like Fusion Middleware and there was Oracle Data Integration and, and so on. I mean, you wrote in your blog recently about, about the topic we're going to talk about, Data Mesh, that there was, I suppose, a style of, of data integration tool and a style of doing data integration back in those days. Um, you've mentioned things like data hubs and so on. I mean, maybe just paint a picture of what data integration was like back in, say, 10 years ago and the, the way in which people approached it. Yeah, you know... Um... It's it's kind of interesting. We can have a laugh about this as well because you know you and I we we were working together when around the time Oracle did the acquisition of this French company called Synopsys, and Synopsys um, at the time um, was really the first uh, independent startup um, that had focused on what we now call ELT technology, extract, load, transform, um, and you know before that. Uh, before Oracle bought Synopsys, Oracle's primary technology in the marketplace um, was around something called Warehouse Builder. Uh, Warehouse Builder was an, an ETL framework that really um, depended uh, holistically around stored procedures as kind of the execution framework within within Oracle databases to do also a form of ELT processing, um, but native to Oracle databases. And so around that time, you know, both Oracle and Synopsys were kind of outliers in the data transformation industry. The, the mainstream uh, by far for data integration in those years were companies like Informatica. Um, you know, IBM at this point had had uh, bought uh, data stage from Essential. Uh, Ab initio was kind of considered the the 800 pound gorilla in the industry kind of servicing high end use cases. And if you look at that kind of cross section of data integration technology in those years being ab initio, um, you know, IBM data stage and, and Informatica, um, you know, these really are classical kind of monolithic, you know, type approaches. In, in some ways, they're very much the, the mainframes of ETL technologies because they're, you know, they typically would deploy on giant sized infrastructure, often proprietary, uh, kind of a, a very limited set of, of, of hardware that would have supported those deployments. You would have had to size them and scale them very carefully. Typically, you would have storage uh, that scaled with the compute. We didn't talk about it that way in those days, but you would have had, you know, kind of very specialized um, uh, storage infrastructure for, for handling that. And, you know, th then your, your workloads um, would have to be kind of carefully planned. Um, but the, the, the benefit was, of course, is that, you know, if you were, a huge company in those years, you know, 10, 15 years ago, and, and you were running, um, you know, nightly batch processing, you, you were extremely dependent on your batch processing completing within a certain time window. And, and in order to do that, you had to have the, the high power tools to, to, to do so. And in those years, 
um, the classical ETL with the transformation happening in a in a large monolithic high powered hub, uh, that was the way to go. Um, you know, so that, that was very much the state of the art. I know. I mean, would you disagree with anything I said there? That was kind of weird. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was interesting, wasn't it? I mean, certainly, you know, you had we had the hubs that were like Informatica, for example, was one that I was most used to. Um, and I suppose in some respects, they what was good about those products was, was it covered all the different kind of use cases and, and, and ecosystem things around it. So, you know, take take warehouse builder, which you know is, is <laughs> there's so much inspiration I still take from that for now with with, with things that I build. Um, mm-hmm. things like data profiling that was there and and dimension dimensional modeling and so on. Um, they they did a fantastic job, but they I think calling them mainframes is a good way of putting it. That that they you know it, yeah, there was a cost with that as well, really. Um, but it's interesting with 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 synopsis because yeah, it was synopsis, and I mean I've been doing I think I must have been doing uh, ELT now for. 15 years, 20 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and but it's funny how that was the product that started off. It's forgotten now really, isn't it? But but there's been, the, I suppose there's been this resurgence of interest in some of those concepts again, in some of the news halls that come out. Um, I, I think it's a, I think, I think it's worth a big, big belly laugh from us old timers because, you know, back in those years, it was extremely radical proposition to say you were going to push your processing down to the target. Um, and, you know, let's just reflect for a moment on where the data warehouse industry was at that time. You were really, this was pre-engineered systems. You were just in the very earliest days of, of systems like Netiza. Um, you know, Teradata was arguably just reaching a maturity curve. Exadata didn't exist. Greenplum didn't exist. Paracel didn't exist. There was no such thing as a cloud data warehouse. So um, you, this idea of using the compute of the warehouse to do the, 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 the transformation workloads is extremely radical at the time. And, you know, I know a lot of the industry analysts that covered Oracle's acquisitions of, uh, acquisition of Synopsys at the time really just didn't give Oracle much of a chance with this whole ELT thing. They thought it was, um, you know, kind of missing the mark with where the industry was at the time. But yeah, to your point, um, nowadays, you know, if you're not doing ETL, it's radical, or sorry, ELT. ELT is the mainstream. If you're working with any of the major uh, cloud-based data warehouses, if you're doing anything on-premise with the engineered uh, systems that run columnar data warehouses, um, you know, you're 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 doing some form of ELT processing, and and it's interesting. A lot of the startups that we're going to talk about in just a few minutes, um, you know, they talk about ELT like it's some you know great great thing, great new thing, and and you know really on the cusp of innovation. But I think the the real pioneers that were doing you know ELT were you know probably 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, I guess probably something that was a, a different motivation though then was if you think about why Oracle was in favor of ELT, ELT, I mean, I've never worked there, but I'd imagine because it it obviously benefits Oracle in that you do more of the processing in the database rather than being done in, in servers outside of the database and you keep the data within the database. It, it would make sense for the likes of Oracle and so on to, to want you to do that in the database. Um, but if you look at, say, I suppose, you know, maybe jumping ahead slightly, you know, there was this kind of, I suppose, world of of, of kind of, like you say, monolithic um, ETL, EL, ETL services. And there were things like, say, Warehouse Builder and, and, and ODI. Um, but then there was a bit like a parallel, I suppose, to the, to, the, to, the, to the analytics world. There was this kind of, I suppose, unbundling and uh, disaggregation of what, what, what was um, a data integration service 
around, I suppose, five or six years ago or whatever. And you had tools like, say, Talend come along that were just doing part of the thing. And then you had services, I suppose, technologies and tools like DBT, where there's been this disaggregation of things. And I suppose, in a way, that's about being a modular approach as opposed to all being with one vendor. Uh, I mean, what, what's your? What's, I mean, I suppose, what's your observation about what you? I think you've called in the past the kind of mini lifts or the more focused pieces of kind of parts of the puzzle that have come along. That's a, an, another great question. I'm going to be somewhat controversial here, and I, what I'm going to assert is that anytime, um, if you're familiar with um, uh, the innovator's dilemma, uh, I think that anytime you get a new entrant into a space, the the natural um, kind of t- positioning is to say, we're going to disaggregate, we're going to unbundle, focus on this one thing, we're going to do it real simp- simply, we're going to keep it easy to use. And then, um, you know, th- then as customer adoption takes off, what happens is they re-aggregate the functionality. Just as Talon started, you know, with kind of a very uh, a focused, you know, kind of specialty around some ELT processing and some of the built-in work that they've done over the years, Look, they've added data governance. They've added data quality. They've you know reached into master data management. They've you know done acquisitions to do self service cloud. You know, and then ultimately now they're going private again. Um, and I think that the, a lot of these um, small startups that are focusing on, on quote unquote data pipeline technologies are going to do something simple, uh, something similar over time. The the real innovation, in my opinion, the real innovation that happens with these small startups and these new entrants is that they're competing on uh, much lower price points usually. You know, where, where talent was able to disrupt the industry back in those years, it was they, they were really the first to aggressively move to a subscription-based pricing model. Um, and I think that, you know, that for all the, the classical ETL vendors that were kind of stuck in perpetual licensing models, um, they moved too slowly towards that subscription-based approach. Similarly, a lot of these, um, you know, tools like like DBT and and Fivetran and and Stitch and others that are going. I think what what they've done that the, to steal a march on the the big guys is that they've offered their services on the cloud platforms that customers are running their data, um, and they provide you know extremely low cost uh, entry point for people to do simple things simply. Um, and so that, but over time, I, I would bet uh, here we'll. We're, we're recording this for posterity. I'll, I'll, bet, you, I'll bet you a dollar that um, if any of these companies, you know, take off and get really big, they're going to re-aggregate all this stuff that you and I know so well. They're going to take on data governance. They're going to take on data quality. They're going to um, bring in profiling, um, catalog functionality. All of that's going to come right back in um, as soon as they they because they, they have to. They're the, as they grow, they need to expand what's called their addressable market. So. Um, you know that I, I think that's the 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 tides that ebb and flow around the data integration market. I guess what's also different with these new tools is is maybe it's a different type of person that's using them as well. So I, I was used to, first of all, you know the the old world of doing this was was also very lucrative as, for a consultancy. You know you would typically have in three or four people that would be there on a project for full time working from the client's office, just doing kind of uh, data ETL routines. Um, whereas now it seems to be um, more, certainly the tools you've been talking about, it would be maybe the analyst who would pick those tools up first of all and would use, for example, Fivetran to replicate data into, say, you know, Redshift or something and then use DBT to transform it. I mean, I suppose 
have you, I mean, have you observed that also that the, the user persona of these tools is changing or is that more a function of this particular market? I would argue more the latter and hear me out on this and we can talk, we can, you know, I, I'm open to, to, to different points of view here, but I would argue more the latter that's a function of the market. And what I mean by that is if you look at DBT, for example, they're very focused on analytics engineering as a use case. And, and, you know, a lot of the five trend use cases took off around the, the Amazon ecosystem. And what, what I think you're seeing is the, the user communities um, that are most productive in a particular cloud vendor sort of uh, drive and attach to a, a set of tooling that kind of empowers that, those use cases that, that, are, that are being focused on there. But if you step back and you look at where the, the mainstream data integration market has been for the last 15 or 20 years, they tend to be more of these enterprise IT use cases where it's, it's not only, hey, what am I doing for this one departmental project on this, this data, data mart or data warehouse? It's like I'm integrating you know, dozens of operational systems for nightly flows to synchronize my ERP applications. You know, it's, it's a different kind of, of, of use case. Um, and I think that it, you know, these tools are kind of speaking to the, the class of user that focuses on those, those kind of departmental analytics or you know, related, related areas. And so, you know, I, I think that's a reflection of, of where the, the, the traction is that they're getting. Yeah, interesting. And I suppose something something that came along <clears throat> really probably after I was really heavily involved with Oracle was the move to the cloud. Um, and maybe just talk about maybe first of all, what was Oracle's journey to take data integration into the cloud? And and were there some sort of general themes and stories there that you think are, are worth kind of noting? Ah, oh, another good question. So the the um uh, the, the, the journey that Oracle took to the cloud around data integration has had a kind of three major waves um, that we've gone to. And I think that in, in large regard, those kind of reflect what, what Oracle has been doing, you know, overall. But in the, in, in the first wave, we were really looking, you know, at the cloud, I would say retrospectively, you know, in, in, in the wrong way from a data integration lens, we were looking at it as a hosted platform, you know, something that, customers wanted to essentially take the things that they were already doing and have, you know, have them run on, on infrastructure that was provided by, by the cloud vendor. And, you know, that really uh, wasn't enough uh, to, to kind of, um, you know, improve the user experience or really, I would say just from a a market perspective, um, it wasn't empowering the new use cases that customers wanted to kind of pull into the cloud. So the second generation, the second wave that we did, um, we we began to uh, provide more of the automation. We actually had launched a service called uh, Autonomous Data Integration Platform. Gosh, now uh, I'm going to get my years wrong here, but I want to say back in 2017, 2018 uh, timeframe. And so, you know, even then we knew um, that the focus had to be on, on radical rethinking of automation um, for data integration. And in those in those years, we're looking at, you know, keeping a lot of the platform capabilities of data integration kind of aggregated into this thing that we called the, the data integration platform. That was kind of our, our second, or, you know, wave of investment around uh, the cloud. And what uh, where we've kind of landed today, which I think is much more um, synonymous with, 
what you see from Amazon and, and Google and, and, and Microsoft is really the recognition that the cloud is the platform. So there, there's not a separate, you know, kind of um, data integration platform that lives on top of a vendor's cloud. The, the cloud is the platform and then the, the services that, that hang off of the, the platform cloud provide the different data integration capabilities. And so that's where we're at today, where we've got, you know, um, capabilities around ETL, capabilities around replication, capabilities around uh, data cataloging and, and data quality and self-service data preparation that all kind of uh, work within the Oracle platform, Oracle Cloud platform as what we call Gen 2 native uh, services running on, on, on OCI. And so that's, you know, I think more similar to what you find with the, the, the Googles and Amazons of the world where these, these services are just, you know, part of the core platform console. Okay, okay. And for anybody that is, I suppose, new to Oracle and, and some of the product names, you mentioned things like Golden Gate earlier on, I mean, as you're responsible for. So maybe just... Yeah, you know, in terms of product names and, and and where they fit together, what what is it that your area looks after? What products do you currently sort of offer in that area? Yeah, you know, it's a, uh, so sometimes I forget. You know, for a lot of your listeners, they may not be familiar with Golden Gate. Golden Gate's actually it's a billion dollar uh, ecosystem globally. It's I would argue, based on my experience with the industry, it's it's probably the most single most successful data integration product in the history of enterprise software. Um, the, you know, Golden Gate, one of the unique things about that, um, which I hope we come back to um, in the discussion, is that Golden Gate actually spans both the operational data integration use cases as well as the analytic data integration use cases. And so a lot of the more conventional ETL tools, like I'll go back to DB2, or sorry, DBT, because we were talking about that. Um, you know, that's really focused on the analytics use cases and the analytics engineering use cases, but you really wouldn't use tools like those to support um, operational data integration where you're moving data around between uh, OLTP engines or SaaS to, to SaaS to SaaS or SaaS to, to service bus or whatever. Um, Golden Gate is 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 used pretty heavily on on uh, the, the DNA or the heritage of Golden Gate comes from the operational side, and then it's really been the last seven to ten years where you've seen Golden Gate for big data uh, take off for you know real time ingestion to to cloud data lakes, um, uh, real time uh, workloads uh, for streaming ETL etc. So that's that's the Golden Gate technology, and and that's really been you know, the way that I look at it, um, you know, Oracle has had uh, some prescience in a couple of areas that I think are kind of not well recognized across the industry. One is the the early focus on on ELT, which we chatted about a minute ago. And Oracle was investing in ELT technologies just years, years and years before it became kind of mainstream. The other thing um, is that Oracle's been the, the giant in the industry when it comes to real-time replication, which to use kind of modern lingo um, to, to give your, you know, maybe your, your, your listeners a sense of what Golden Gate does from a technical perspective. It's a, a decentralized data ledger that is capable of moving uh, database transaction events uh, across uh, uh, global networks. And so we're, what we, what we do with the Golden Gate technology is we uh, decentralize the, uh, the the logs or the ledgers of different databases, not just Oracle database, but really any any database. And then we uh, move those 
those ledgers around uh, to, to any network in any physical location. And so it's, it's providing a, led, a decentralized ledger-based way of doing data integration. And that's pretty that's actually very, very different than what ETL tools do. ETL tools typically copy SQL around, um, and and that's not at all what what Golden Gate is doing. So that's you know another area that I'm I'm a strong believer that the future of data integration is going to be more ledger based uh, because with ledgers you have um, awareness of the arrow of time. Uh, when you're working with traditional data integration tools, you're typically working with snapshots um, that are points in time. Uh, with a ledger, you actually have event by event record of how the state of your data is changing through time. And that is incredibly important for use cases around uh, data science. And it also provides you a way to kind of dynamically reconstruct the state of your data uh, given, you know, kind of any nanosecond point in time. Okay, okay. That's probably quite a nice lead into the, the thing that prompted me to contact you again, actually, which was <clears throat> reading about your, you, you've been writing about this concept of data meshes and and, and probably being an old, an old cynic, I read some of that and I think, yeah, that's that's another kind of buzzword thing. Um, but actually reading through the article you'd written, I thought actually I can, I can identify with some of the things you're talking about there. So I suppose there's a lead into this topic. Um, what, was the, what was the situation and what were the needs that you saw in customers and was being seen in the industry that have led to, I suppose, the latest generation of how you're talking about things and this idea of data mesh? So what was the, the problem needs to be solved really at this point? Yeah, I, the the first thing I want to say, just as a pre- preamble before we get into the technology discussion, one of the things that I think the uh, the ThoughtWorks uh, team has done very well with the data mesh idea is they've highlighted the need for uh, cultural and and methodological or process uh, shift in thinking around um, how we conceptualize what we now call data product thinking in 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 the data mesh world, and there's a whole you know, we could spend, I think, you know, maybe another hour just talking about what what does it mean to have data products um, and the cultural, you know, people sh- uh, 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 changes that need to happen to support that. But from a technical perspective, um, there's kind of three big things happening that um, that 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 I've seen over the years, you know, as a, a trending. And um, the the phrase data mesh, you know, albeit kind of a buzzword ish, we've seen a lot of buzzwords in our in our years with data integration. But that what what I loved about this phrase data mesh is it kind of evoked a few things that um, yeah our customers were were already doing with the technology, and and I, I see it as still very cutting edge stuff. It, it, you know, the the word mesh. If you think about how that's used in common language by kind of non-IT geeks, you know, people would have heard about that in the relation to their Wi-Fi systems for home Wi-Fi environments. And the what we you know would have used in our houses uh, a few years back would have just been a normal Wi-Fi router where all of our devices attach off of a single Wi-Fi you know access point, which gives us that gateway to the internet. Um, that would be 
you know, what metaphorically I would call it conventional hub and spoke. Everything's kind of going to one access point and then you reach out to the internet from there. But what's happened is uh, the industry has shifted very aggressively towards these Wi-Fi mesh technologies where within your house now, you might have um, multiple mesh nodes um, in different locations of your house. And each mesh node is capable of talking to other mesh nodes uh, before they go back to the access point, which gives you your gateway to the internet. And so this idea of a mesh effectively is about decentralization. It's about rejecting the idea of a hub and spoke. And that's what people have been doing with Golden Gate for quite some time. We have these microservices within Golden Gate that can talk to each other through what are called distribution paths and receiver services. And you can uh, essentially create a decentralized network of microservices that are all talking to each other without having to route through a common um uh, through a common hub. And the what you're doing with these microservices in the case of Golden Gate is you're um, replicating the ledger of your uh, uh, transactions. Your, you know, it could be database transactions, it could be NoSQL transactions, it could be Kafka uh, messages, but it, these transactions move through a protocol that's a Golden Gate protocol. And that's what Golden Gate is tracking from node to node we're, we're keeping a running log of, of these transactions that are, you know, highly available, um, recoverable and, and fully consistent with uh, asset level characteristics of, of a relational database. And so the, the, with Golden Gate, this is all happening with millisecond level frequency um, across, you know, vast distances, you know, crossing continents and crossing oceans. And so um, what people have historically done with Golden Gate, imagine you're a large multinational organization, but you've got uh, databases that are uh, what's called sharded. You've got different collections of data that need to run on different continents, uh, but you want to be able to uh, have a highly consistent replication so that if I have some users coming in through Singapore, others coming in through London, others coming in through California, that those transactions can be continuously synchronized with one another with a high level of confidence or guarantee uh, that you're going to have uh, full consistency uh, as those transactions commit. And so that's kind of the classical use case for, for database-centric Golden Gate. But then what people have realized is that, hey, I've got these high speed, uh, you know, highly available, fully consistent, you know, replications happening on my most important data. What if I just tap into that and start routing it to my analytics cloud? So now I've got these data lakes running in Azure, running in, in Google or, you know, BigQuery, whatever, you know, object store in an S3 bucket or Azure Data Lake Gen 2. What we can do is we can just tap into all those high value transactions that are currently flowing at millisecond level frequency and just start pushing those transactions into your analytic environments. Um, and that's really been kind of the, the the next phase of growth that we've seen with Golden Gate over the last seven years. So um, that's probably a, a, a lot to, to cover there. But, I'll, you know, I'll <laughs> but it's pause. interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. And I mean, certainly, right, I, I doubt, I mean, it, most people I speak to are not running multinational, massive organisations that have um, that have systems on different continents and and, and so on. Um, most of them, but what what they all do seem to have is a, a, an interest in microservices 
and the uh, the kind of the desire to build systems within their within their sort of tech startup that are built of microservices and each one of them has its own small subset of the data and they pass data between those microservices to 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 run their business um and this sounds like a similar concept in a way that you're you're looking to try and capture activity and data across multiple microservices in this case um and get a consistent view of it but i suppose the the question the problem these people have is is not so much that it's running across different continents and the world will end if they data data gets out of sync. It's trying to get a single consistent view and understanding of the data across these all these different sources. And also, they would typically be thinking about doing that using sort of blockchain technology or Kafka. So I suppose questions would be: Is this something? Is, a, is it a concept that would apply to smaller companies using microservices and trying to solve that problem? And why would they not use Kafka or say blockchain to do this? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a great uh, pivot because the, you know, the, the classical use case that I just described effectively is when you have monoliths running on different continents, but you need the monoliths synchronized in, you know, n- near real time or real time. Um, and, and you need it with high, high consistency. So, so that's kind of the classical use. But then what you just described, which is, you know, interesting is that, you know, little companies don't have that problem yet. If they, become successful, they will, but um, little companies typically have that problem yet. What they do do, though, is they run these atomic um, microservices where, let's just talk for a a moment about what that that means. When you have microservices, typically what you're doing is you have full encapsulation of your data logic within kind of a well-defined granularity of of your application. So rather than having a, 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 a larger database schema with multiple components reading from the same schema, um, you're typically going to have some isolation where your individual microservices will have a, um, uh, their own uh, encapsulated uh, schema, typically used for durable um, data that needs to be recovered. But the, the microservices themselves they will either communicate with each other directly or they may communicate with each other through an event store um, or through something like a, a Kafka environment. Um, but, the, you know, the typically the anti-pattern has been, you know, A, don't use shared schema across multiple microservices. And then B, um, you know, the t- typically saying, you know, don't move the data at the physical persistence tier, um, you know, move the route the data through the microservices tier. So, what's ended up happening is there's a great, you know, kind of uh, un- underlying kind of user community discussion about what's the best ways to 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 do, um, you know, reliable communications of, of data centric payloads with with microservices and what. Um, you know, many, many people have invested quite a bit in in core microservices patterns like um, uh, DDD for uh, domain driven design, or you know, working with patterns, established patterns like CQRS or aggregates. And when you go that route, what you wind up doing is, you know, the, the all of the all of the great works around microservices. You basically encourage people to. Uh, write your application in a style that can tolerate eventual consistency. Um, or they can, you know, in, effect, in effect, you're saying that, well, your application needs to be able to tolerate the fact that your data is not reliable. <laughs> um, and so for, for some applications, that's fine. You always see these sort of examples out there of like shopping carts, you know, well, 
Okay. If you lose, if your customer loses the data in their shopping cart, it's not a big deal. But um, if for, for others that are designing microservices, you actually do need lots of, um, you know, reliability in, in your data. So the, you know, one, one of our customers that's written about this and, and, and spoken about this in public is PayPal. Um, PayPal has a, a, a whole microservices based application framework for their uh, payments engine. So a lot of the core kind of payments apps that are kind of running behind PayPal, they're built on microservices architecture, but so are the um, applications that serve your um, uh, PayPal uh, payments information to your phone or to your, you know, you're browsing via a website. So you've got all these different kind of microservices. Some are doing the core workloads around payments processing. Others are actually providing you as the consumer your information about, let's say, your uh, PayPal activity getting pushed to your phone. Um, but these are different microservices. So the question really becomes, do I, you know, what pattern do I follow to do um, a data uh, uh, um, reconciliation across microservices? And so what, in the case of PayPal, they looked at using some of the microservices design patterns that required eventual consistency. They looked at um, doing multi-phase commits uh, for example, with and encoding the the transaction logic in the microservices layer, and what they realized very quickly is they would actually have to go down the route of writing uh, relational database logic in the microservices tier in order to handle these uh, kind of rollback scenarios where you know if transactions don't. Um, you know, for whatever reason, network issues or, you know, uh, in microservices outage, you know, as you kind of even within a single, we're not here, we're not talking about global data, we're talking about like within a data center, possibly even running within the same Kubernetes cluster, um, you know, you can still have messages that, that, um, that don't get delivered from service to service. And so you, if you want to maintain consistency, the developer needs to encode all that logic. Though so they said, well, we don't want to do that. So the other thing that they looked at is kind of using Kafka as a, as a broker. Um, and with, with Kafka as a broker, you still run into these uh, various kind of transactionality issues. If uh, partitions are, are not available or if um, the, the, something happens with the, uh, the subscriber side of your service kind of not getting notified of what the, the publisher has, has put in. There's some edge cases around um, the, the atomicity and the isolation uh, properties of ACID that are not covered there. And so that I think it's fairly well understood that the types of transactions supported in Kafka are not the same types of ACID transactions that a database provides. And so they, they were not comfortable with those scenarios. And so in their case, what they ended up doing is they used a, 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 another pattern in microservices called transaction outbox. Um, and transaction outbox is a CDC, a change data capture based pattern where you, you effectively say, okay, we're going to use a, a change data capture tool to monitor uh, changes in the relational database. And we're going to replicate those transactions, you know, through some type of broker um, to another microservices uh, schema. Um, or it could actually go, it doesn't need to go to the, it can go to different endpoints actually uh, by the pattern. But in their case, um, this went database to, to database. And so in effect, uh, what PayPal is going with is a transaction outbox pattern using Golden Gate um, for microservices. 
And what you get there, the, the main win that you get, well, there's two, there's two things. The, the first and most important thing for these kind of uh, SLAs that you want is that you get 100% um, guarantees around your uh, transaction reliability. So you don't, you don't lose data. You, there's no risk of losing data. And that comes from the benefit of using, you know, you're using an ACID uh, replication tool with an ACID data store. Um, and so um, you don't you don't ever kind of have these missing data problems. Um, and then the other thing that you get is you get very low latencies, right? So you're you're typically dealing with milliseconds to single digit seconds of, of replication. So that in PayPal's case, you want to see your payment activity in your activity stream within a second or two of your payment being processed, um, right? And that that should happen you know, with, with high, high levels of reliability, hundred percent reliability. So, so those are some of the characteristics, like even within the microservices world, why would you want to use a, a data mesh um, in order to get some of these um, properties of data management systems that you just don't get unless you encode, a, a, if you, if you want to encode all the logic of relational databases in your microservices tier, you're welcome to do that. But that's why databases exist, right? And if you want to try to encode um, a, a logic around Kafka to make Kafka appear as a relational database, you're welcome to do that too. But that's not what Kafka is. Kafka is a messaging platform. So um, but, uh, you know, the, there are these useful patterns even for smaller microservice-based applications for people to, you know, to kind of tap into the power of, of, of tools like this when you, when you can't live with eventual consistency or if you can't live with uh, data out of sync problems in your app. Um, this is kind of a viable pattern uh, mm. to support those situations. So how much do you think, how much also does data mesh address the, the, I suppose the reality of like, multi-cloud, that, that no, no one customer uses one cloud really? And and so, you know, is, is part of it addressing that and, and the need to kind of keep those in sync and to, to move data between them? Yeah, I think there we're creeping back up into this question of, of larger companies. So I would argue that, you know, what we were just chatting about a moment ago, even a small company kind of doing a micro, if you're going with a hardcore microservices based application and you have needs uh, for high di- data reliability between your microservices, you, you can look at patterns like transaction outbox, even if you're not a big company and, and those can make sense. Um, but what, um, when you get into multi-cloud scenarios, what we're finding is that, you know, custo- you know w- within even a medium-sized company, you could have kind of department A that said, well, I'm running this application on Amazon, but then department B says, well, we're standing up a data lake on Azure. Um, and then, you know, then you've got department C that's like, well, I've got my legacy systems already running on premise, and I'm not going to be completing any kind of lift and shift migration for the foreseeable number of years. So you've got this already a scenario where I've got a little bit on-prem, got a little bit on Amazon, I've got a little bit on Azure. You know, how do I create a cohesive uh, data integration framework across these ecosystems? Because look, if I go and I run, you know, only what's available to me on Amazon or only what's available to me on Azure, they don't talk to each other. Like the data integration services, um, that run on a, uh, you know each of the public cloud vendors or hyper specialized for the public cloud vendors, or you get some of these newer 
entrants that are kind of like heavily aligned with the GCP ecosystem, well, they don't run on premise. Um, and so, uh, you know, or, you know, in the case of what we were talking about about 15 minutes ago, maybe they're all batch oriented, but the customer wants to set up, you know, real time you know, feeds for, for analytics. So th that's where the kinds of use cases that, you know, I'm super passionate about, you know, I think that, that, the, the future really holds many more of these scenarios where customers are kind of divvying up their cloud spend between the, the different mega cloud vendors. And there needs to be kind of reliable data integration that can be decentralized, uh, effectively decentralized across these clouds so that if you know I don't have to route everything through AWS Glue or if I'm running DBT on GCP, I don't have to out everything through dbt even if my data lake is running on a, a different non-gcp cloud or something so those kinds of use cases i think will apply even to to medium-sized businesses certainly to the to the large customers okay so maybe just sort of round things off i mean imagine i imagine you've probably got a lot of people's interest in this conversation um but a lot but maybe again i imagine a lot of maybe developers or consultants are thinking but where on earth would i would i um maybe get my hands on this stuff or where would I find out about it or, or how could I, how could I enable myself to understand how this works and maybe, maybe kind of in some way put together a POC or something. I mean, how, how would a developer or a consultant start to find a bit more about this and maybe sort of get some experience? Yeah. You know, I, I actually, I'm going to toss this back to you a little bit because you know what, one of my own um, failings and faults, I know I get very excited about, kind of like the big picture trends and the mm. kind of as the theory is evolving, I look at, you know, these new, you know, decentralized microservices architectures or ledger-based data integration, the, the rise of stream processing as a way of doing ETL rather than batch processing. Um, yeah, I get real excited and jazzed up by the big picture stuff. And, you know, your question here is a great one because, you know, a lot of people listening may say, well, that's, Great, Jeff. You sound like your head's in the clouds, but you know what do I really need to do to make this real? Mm. Um, and I, I think you know, from my own, so I, I do lose sight of that a lot of times. What I would say is, um, you know, we've tried to put together a couple of assets out there on the on the Oracle side of things. We we uh, we have a technology paper that's available. It's about sixty pages long. I'll say about forty pages of those are um, non vendor specific we we kind of mm -hmm. the way we structured is we tried to talk about data mesh in a um in a in a, an agnostic way for about 40 pages and then we kind of in the final 20 pages uh tie that back into what we're doing with the various uh oracle data integration technologies including golden gate so you know that's kind of one option is to kind of take a look at the tech technology paper. There's a lot of interesting sort of drill down topics there around how do you do security in a decentralized world? Um, how do you um, provide governance when, um, you know, you may not have centralization of data in a, in a single data lake? Um, so there's lots of areas of, 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 of drill down that we just didn't have time to get into today. Mm. Um, the other thing that I would say, again, not to sound like I'm pushing product here, but um, as a pragmatic item, we, we have uh, the Golden Gate microservices capabilities available as a managed cloud service in the, in the mm -hmm. Oracle cloud. Um, we've got that available for, you know, it's like a, a $1.30, you know, $1.34 an hour 
um, mm. to just stand that up and play with it. In fact, it, at Oracle, um, we have something called uh, Green Button uh, Live Labs, where people can just go try this stuff um, with a with a guided kind of three hour uh, trial. Um, just to kind of get familiar with what what does it even mean when we talk about Golden Gate microservices? What does that even mean? What it, from a developer perspective? What 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 can I even use there? And so I realize that's kind of tied in with the Oracle Cloud. But the 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 nice thing about what we've been chatting about is that this exact same microservices user experience that I have in the Oracle Cloud is the same that I would have if I'm running on, on Azure or AWS mm -hmm. or, or Google or in, in edge, you know, 5g edge device. Um, it's the same microservices. Um, and so for the, the question about how do I get familiar with this stuff, mm -hmm. you know, pick, pick a platform. And in this case, you know, at least if it's on the Oracle platform, you know, we've got like various free hands-on training stuff going on to get going there. And then just know that, whatever you're playing with on the Oracle platform that runs exactly the same way on, on other platforms. Fantastic. Well, Jeff, it's been great speaking to you. Really good to catch up and um, a really interesting, I suppose, insight into where the top end of the market is going and how that could apply to, you know, to some of the things that some of our listeners are thinking about as well. So um, thank you very much, Jeff. It's been great speaking to you and uh, take care and I hope you speak again soon. Thanks for having me here, Mario. It's been a lot of fun. 